Good morning, church. Would you be turning in your Bibles again this morning to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6. This morning, we'll be looking at verse 21, taking our time to examine that verse and the two parts of it. As I read this morning, I'll back up to verse 20 and just give a little context. Remember, as I read these words, these are the words of Yahweh God himself. And turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who cry now, for you shall laugh. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time this morning. Father, as Jeremy prayed just a few moments ago, your word has power to affect change in us, but we need the spirit to work in our weak flesh to make that word come alive to us. So would your spirit move through this room right now and showing us that in our hunger and in our mourning, our crying, our longing, We are blessed people, and we will be rewarded. And may that affect change in our lives right now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the most potent stimuli for hard work is the promise of reward. You think of David killing a pack of Philistines so he can get a bride from then King Saul. Or you think of Jacob working for Laban for 14 years for the same reward. What about the man who sold all that he had so that he could get the treasure in the field? Or Paul, the apostle, running the race with the result that he won the prize. The future benefit is God's means to make the current cost worthwhile. This last week, my son Amos came up to me to ask if he could use some of his savings to buy some Legos. And I was thinking back on our recent Future Men get-together that John 2 led for us, and we started to think together about planning and investing, investing in the future. And I asked Amos if he had considered saving up for something that would be useful for a business when he was a young man, when he was a growing young adult. We went back and forth with some different ideas. A chainsaw came up, UTV, cell phone. I had to continually remind him that handguns don't pull trailers. And that was part of our conversation. And finally, we landed on a truck. The pickup is a lot more expensive than the Lego set. There's the added cost of time and having to wait for the thing that you want. But, but after we look at some used trucks online, some really nice ones too, and we considered his earning potential over the coming years until he's able to get a driver's license, that future reward quickly erased the objections of the present cost. We saw last week in the first beatitude that the pious poor don't have to wait for the gift that God is to give them. They receive the kingdom of God with all its current spiritual and physical benefits right now in this life. Jesus speaks in Mark chapter 10 verse 30 of houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms 100 fold more than you give up in this life, the kingdom of God. And he says, you get this now But our God is a lavish God, not just in this moment, but on into eternity. The believer's state of blessedness doesn't just mean God's favor right now, and it just doesn't mean his kingdom right now and the benefits that we can receive therein. And those are precious things, but also our God is lavish later. He's lavish in rewards. This points to an inheritance, incorruptible, 
undefiled and unfading, having been kept in heaven for us. Philippians 1 verse 4. And that's what these next two Beatitudes are all about this morning. As we go into verse 21, I want to do a quick review of verse 20 that we went through last week. If we're going to understand the Sermon on the Mount rightly, and we're going to understand the context where we're at, the Sermon on the Plain, Luke's context, we have to have solidly in our mind what these Beatitudes are really all about. You remember that the name Beatitude comes from the Latin Beatus, meaning happy or fortunate. This blessing, however, is more than fleeting emotions. It's a new realm. It is a place of honor and favor, the hope of all the ages, what all humanity has longed for since the fall. To be moved from the place of a damned rebel, an outcast, into the loving embrace of their creator, God. Jesus began this sermon Last week we saw with blessed are the poor. We saw that this includes both invisible or spiritual and visible or tangible elements, this blessing to the poor. The multitude of people looking on as Jesus speaks here in Luke chapter 6 sees a group of guys who are pretty poor. They're standing out on the middle of a field up high somewhere And they understand Jesus to be talking about their poverty in the plain sense of the word. No riches, no fame, no status, no earthly glory. But the disciples feel their poverty in a different way. That poorness of spirit that Matthew talks about. This is the invisible kind. It's the state of their souls. Having been with Jesus for some time, having seen his character, understanding more and more his teaching, seeing firsthand his own goodness, the way that he treats others. By the Spirit's power, the disciples recognize how bankrupt they really are in their flesh, how poor they really are in spirit. They knew that they didn't have anything like this man's righteousness. Peter saw this same thing, and in Luke chapter 5, verse 8, you remember, he cried out to Jesus, go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. That's the cry of somebody who's poor in spirit. That's the cry of somebody who has nothing left. It's when you reach the bottom, and you have nowhere else to go. And what does a poor man do? Well, he begs. When you have nothing left, you beg. With nothing left, you beat your chest and you say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Luke 18, verse 13. So what is this poor in spirit that Matthew spoke of? It's the beginning of the Christian life. I'm broke. I'm done. I have nothing left, nowhere else to go. God, I need you. You see, it's getting to that place, getting that far down, that requires the miracle of God. Pastor Tim Conway once rightly said, the hard part for people who need to be saved is not admitting that they're sinners. The hard part is not admitting that they're sinners. The hard part is forsaking the idea that they have any goodness. That's the difficult part. If you still think somewhere inside of you there's an ounce of righteousness apart from God's work in you that would make God accept you or that your self-help good works could please an eternally holy and just God, you still haven't reached the end of yourself. You still haven't become poor in spirit. Not so for these disciples. It is to them that Jesus privately communicated up on top of the mountain the deep and profound truth. When you get this poor, when you become poor in spirit, blessed are you, favored by the Father. You are in a new state, a new realm of blessing. You are a citizen of and a co-heir of the kingdom of heaven. Now Matthew's version of the sermon, if we can 
call it that, is exciting for us as Christians. We resonate with it. Every person who puts their faith in Christ knows what it's like to have nothing left to offer. Jesus is all there is for me. But we're so familiar with what Jesus says in Matthew that when we come to Jesus' teaching to the wider audience in Luke, we treat Luke like Matthew. Like Jesus is talking to a bunch of Christians, and that's just not the case. Jews and Greeks, Tyrians and Sidonians, men and women still not in the know, still darkened in their understanding, who've never experienced the spiritual pauperism that Jesus taught about up on top of the mountain. He hits them with the visible as a means of revealing to them their need in the invisible. Do you see these men? They don't look like much, do they? They're nobodies, rejects, left homes and jobs and gave up acting like good little Jewish boys. But I tell you that this bunch have received the blessing of God that you all are sitting here hoping for. This is Luke's context. Not only can these men stand before God, they stand as righteous men. Sure, the world says that they are poor, poor indeed, Not a lot of money, nice clothes, or prestigious positions, but let me tell you what they get for it all. These poor are co-heirs of God's kingdom. That's who Luke's poor are. Those who counted the cost gave it all, both visibly and invisibly, both in spirit and in body for King Jesus. Whatever they had confidence in to make them righteous, any and everything that would make a person rich in the eyes of the world, they walked away from all of it for the sake of Christ. Paul said the same thing, didn't he? You remember when he bragged about all the awards and achievements as a Pharisee of Pharisees? All the things that he landed according to the flesh? He said, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, visible and invisible, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. That's what it means to be poor in the Sermon on the Plain. And I can't help but stop and ask, are you poor today? Have you come to a place where you have no more options for getting right with God? In fact, when you think about how you could ever make it on your own, there's this massive eternal debt in your mind that you owe, and you say, there's no way. There's no way. I've been far too wicked. My account is empty. No worse than that. It's deep in the red. Badly so. If every person in the world were to hand all of their good works to me, every person who's ever done a kind deed for someone else, and I was to present those good deeds to the Father, it would still not be enough to pay for my debt. I have too high a price on my head for sin, and I know it. Now, I'm not talking about feeling down on yourself. I'm not talking about having a low view of what you think of you. I'm talking about how you feel because of what you know God thinks about you apart from Christ. If you're lost and you can't identify with any of that, then cry out to God, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. If you find yourself poor in spirit now, right now in this place, cry out to God right now and know for a fact that the moment that you cry out to him, he receives you. And for the rest of us, let those thoughts sit with you for just a minute about the poor and the poor in spirit from Matthew and Luke. Don't jump to a list of what you can do to start feeling more poor. Let's follow these next two Beatitudes and work through them together because they're going to build on this first one. The first one lays the foundation for the next ones that we're going to deal with today in verse 21. Let's look at the first half of verse 21. 
blessed are the poor in verse 20 is followed by blessed are those who hunger. When you think of poverty, you probably think of somebody who deals with hunger. And you might also think in connection with poverty, someone who faces tears. Well, following, blessed are those who cry. And people down in the gutter like that are generally despised by everyone else. You'll see the passage that Jeremy's going to deal with next week. Blessed are those who reject you and hate you and say all kinds of mean-spirited things about you. You get the idea. If poor in verse 20 has both visible and invisible connotations, then we should expect the same to be true of the rest of the Beatitudes. Verse 21, blessed are those who hunger now. What does the crowd hear Jesus saying when he says, blessed are those who hunger now? Following Jesus could cost you a meal. Could cost you more than one meal. His disciples have been hungry in the past. The crowds who have been following him for some time have seen that. If I follow Jesus, I may have to go without. Now, those are all true things. If the crowd is seeing that much, they are seeing something that is a true reality in the Christian life. It's true that Jesus and his disciples faced hunger. You remember back in Luke 4, Jesus was 40 days in the wilderness, fasting and praying, and when they were ended, verse 2, he was hungry. The Lord went out to find food on a fig tree in Mark chapter 11. He didn't find any figs on that tree, but he went out to find food because, in verse 12, he was hungry. And we just read how on a Sabbath day, the disciples were passing a field of grain and they were plucking those heads of grain and got in trouble with the Pharisees. Why? Because they were hungry. If you follow Christ, you might have to pay an empty tummy price. It could come to that. But I want you to think with me for just a minute, beloved. Of all of the Beatitudes of Jesus, this is the one that we can probably relate to the least. This is the one that probably makes the least sense to us, that we can draw the least parallels, at least in the visible sense, in our own lives. How many of you have ever been in a situation where you faced legitimate and certainly prolonged hunger for the sake of the Lord? I can remember working a world changers construction job one year when I was in middle school. It was a hot summer in Charleston, South Carolina, and the van that was supposed to bring lunch and drinks, refreshments, water to the job site was delayed. I can't remember why. A dozen usually well-fed preteens all together in the high 90s had to go for about an hour or two without their munchies. Probably goes without saying that we didn't handle it like a people of virtue. But here's the thing, our culture and even the church today despises the thought of hunger. Who would think of going without a meal for anything, for any reason at all? We're the fattest generation in world history. Grossly oversized plates, snacks in betweens every meal, and mountains of desserts. And we are the, we're the YOLO generation. You only live one time. I've got to have what I want now. My belly's craving the burger, the steak, the pizza, the coffee, the dark chocolate. What do you mean less is more? Why do, why do people that are spiritual say things like that, man? Let us eat and drink for tomorrow. We're probably going to end up dead anyway. And that's what the world thinks, isn't it? We, see, we feel so guilty for our own gluttony that we donate to charities and organizations so that we can share food with others, which sounds like a good thing, but in many minds, it's just to alleviate this own guilty conscience that I can't stop eating. Let's just make sure that everybody has some. The question has to be asked, though, because Jesus here says, 
blessed are those who hunger now. He doesn't say, woe is you. He says, blessed. How could hunger be a blessing? Blessed are those who hunger now. So does that mean that if I'm not hungry right now, that if I don't suffer hunger, physical loss in my appetite for Jesus, I can actually lose the blessing, the favor of God on my life because I had to go without for the sake of the kingdom. Let's go ahead and dispense with something right now. And this is true for these Beatitudes as a whole. Nowhere in the verses that we're reading today or what we looked at last week, nowhere is Jesus commanding anything. I want you to notice that. In verses 20 to 23, there are zero imperatives. He's describing his people's lives. He's showing us what the Christian life will often include You can't walk away from this with a to-do list. Well, I want more of a blessing, so I need to go get hungry. It says hunger now, so that means it matters on this earth, in this life right now, that I suffer. We should experience this. Christians, this should be a regular thing for us. We've got to give up food now. Let's start fasting. God will satisfy us later on if we do. Now, is that right? or almost right. And there's a big difference. The point of the Beatitudes is not to give you a new works righteousness. It's to reveal the magnificent place of being at the absolute bottom and still saying, I'm not moving. I'm gonna stay right here with the Lord because there's nowhere else to go. Church, you have got to hate the impulse towards a works-based righteousness. Even when you read the Beatitudes, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? Sit and let the words of God wash over you. Jesus and his followers, by the way, were often well-fed. When Matthew Levi held a banquet for the Lord, Jesus and his disciples feasted with a meal that's monetary value exceeded probably any other gift Jesus received in his lifetime, based on what we know. You remember when Peter and James and Barnabas were at the fellowship meal, and Paul called Peter out over the circumcision stuff. I mean, they weren't cutting peas in half. They were eating, they were feasting, they were rejoicing. When the Pharisees accused Jesus and the disciples of not fasting, but instead, what do you guys do? You hang out with gluttons and drunkards. Where do they get that name? There's a lot of food. There's a lot of things to drink. Furthermore, we know from verse 20 that Jesus isn't just talking about a visible kind of hunger. Here's where we need to include a broader context for ourselves. One of the commentators I refer to most frequently, Daryl Bach, reveals that the Greek phrase... Hoipenontes, which is hunger now in the LSB, has both socioeconomic and religious overtones. And he says, errors of interpretation occur when either element is removed. So when you think poor, as many people in the world today do, and you think only economic poor, it matters that Christians give away so much that they're economically poor you're going to find errors in your interpretation. We know one of those I read last week. If you give away all you have, deliver up your body to be burned, but have not love, you've not gained anything. Jesus says, you who hunger now, but look at what he says next. He says, you shall be satisfied. It's an already not yet beatitude. There's a future hope. There's an eschatological reward. Emptiness now, and more than one kind of emptiness, but fullness awaits. Here you have a crowd who's all wrapped up in the present, and Jesus is saying, they hunger now. So what? Why are you so concerned about your daily bread? 
Life is more than food. The body more than clothes. These men gave up obsessing over where it's coming from. And I tell you that now in front of you, they stand as blessed. Because later on when it really counts, where moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal, when they will need food for eternity, they're the ones that are going to be satisfied. Even if you've never faced legitimate hunger, malnourishment, deprivation, God has filled the Imago Dei with immortality. Ecclesiastes 3.11, Yahweh has set eternity in men's hearts. And we hunger deeply, lastingly for something more than just food. This last week on the Theology Pugcast podcast, the guys interviewed author Rosaria Butterfield. And by the way, it's a great interview. Five stars, highly recommend you go listen to that one. She was describing early on in the podcast her conversion and said that she read through the Bible over and over and over again, studying it, examining it, and she kept hitting Solomon's words. She kept coming back to them, saying, these are pivotal for my salvation. God has set eternity in men's hearts. She was a former leftist, feminist, lesbian, gay rights activist, and New York college professor. She was constantly, though, while she was living up what the world would say, oh, you're, you've got everything. I mean, you, you have the status. You've got all the intersectionals. You're where everybody needs to be. At the same time, she said she went to funeral after funeral after funeral for her friends, people who were dying of AIDS and other diseases as a result of sexual sin. And she said that it was that point of coming face to face again with eternity. Yahweh has set eternity in men's hearts. She couldn't get away from it. She realized there's a hunger and satisfaction in me that can't be satisfied with what I've got here in this world. So she made herself hungry. She gave it all up for Jesus. Lewis was on to something when he said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. You see, the appetite for the everlasting reward is in all of us, beloved. Fallen men suppress that feeling. They look for filling and worldly pleasures, food and drink and money and drugs and sex and identity and power and preeminence. There may have been some on that plane that day when Jesus began working his way through these Beatitudes who through that power of the Holy Spirit did actually hear the deeper meaning of what Jesus was saying. Something inside them was saying, you really don't want all the stuff that you've got. You've had some of what he's talking about. You've had all that he's talking about. And you know you're not satisfied. Lost person, Jesus' words in Luke chapter 6 are for you. There's a cost for this kind of Christian life. It is not an easy life. It's not comfortable. But the experience of the blessing of the favor of God, knowing his love for you in Christ, there's nothing like it. And to know that one day you will be filled to the full with every joy in heaven. So what are you waiting for? What's the spiritual meaning behind the hunger? What's the religious overtone that Bach was referring to? Jesus just told his disciples on the mountaintop that it's those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're the ones who shall be satisfied. I don't have time to go into this in detail because we're in Luke, we're not preaching Matthew. But I want to mention that if you read the context of the sermon in Matthew... Jesus is not talking about a hunger and a thirst for a positional righteousness. He's not talking about, I want to be justified before God. Neither the Greek word he uses nor the context of the sermon tells us that he's talking about a hunger for salvation. He's talking about a righteous life. When Jesus said, but seek first the kingdom and his righteousness... 
He was referring to sanctification. He was referring to growing more like Christ throughout your walk. This is what R.C. Sproul called a driving desire for the things of God. That's what's at the bottom of this. That's what's at the bottom of this hunger. Those who have become poor in spirit, they've seen their great need. They've been given new appetites in Christ. They are hungry for obedience to God that shows itself in visible righteousness before men. The only kind of righteousness that actually exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. They know that they're hopeless on their own, but they crave living like Jesus. I'm going all in with this man. I've got to have the righteousness that he's teaching about. At all costs, I want my life to look like his. And what does the Lord turn and say to them? Blessed are you. And your reward is coming. Blessed are you now, but your reward is still coming. He has satisfied the thirsty soul and the hungry soul he has filled with what is good. Psalm 107, verse 9. I have to stop and ask you, brethren, are you hungry like this? Are the cravings of your heart met in entertainment or ownership or what you put into your belly? Or does your soul demand a righteous life? to live like Jesus. I want to be like him. I want to speak like him. I want to serve like him. I want to love like him. I'll never be happy until I can. I'm hungering for righteousness. It doesn't matter what he calls me to. I've got to live as pleasing unto Jesus. We recognize that Jesus said some hard things. He set the bar much higher than is humanly possible. There was a point in his ministry where a big chunk of his disciples just walked away from him. I've had enough of this. This is insane. Our Lord turned to his disciples, the ones remaining, and said, now's your chance. This is the season of unenrollment. There's the door. You know what Peter said. Lord, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. I can't go anywhere, Jesus. I'm, I don't look enough like you yet. How can I leave? I want to be like you in every way. And I tell you, beloved, it is people like that who are truly blessed. They are those of whom the world is not worthy. Now, it doesn't matter how low Christians look to the general public. They exist in a state of favor with God that would make the most wealthy billionaire or powerful despot envious of them. Just like the story of the rich man and Lazarus, after death, everything gets turned on its head. Everybody sees it the way that it really is in the true eternal reality of God. The pious poor, the ones who are hungry for righteousness, they are the ones who are consoled. They're the ones in the place of consolation. Now, I know all of us realize that this year is shaping up to be a bit tumultuous. So what if the Satan-worshipping, child-sacrificing, image-of-God-mutilating heathen are granted even more control than they have now? We're all rounded up and we're carted off to the camps. And we face real hunger and real want like we've never faced before. Will you be consumed with the loss of your earthly treasures or will you still crave persistent pursuit of obedience to Jesus even in the boxcar to Auschwitz? It does look like it could get that bad, but what if it never does? What if God does something else and he gives us a respite? He gives us a season of relief. A few weeks ago, I talked about preppers and preppers in the times of political doom when the clouds are gathering and they become consumed with building bigger barns for Armageddon. Is that what's on your mind? Or do you have an insatiable yearning in your soul for God's righteousness? Let me go back to what I said earlier. Don't hear this as a challenge to get to work. 
No imperatives here, only indicatives. You say, but Chris, I see a lack of desire in myself for this kind of righteousness. My aims are too many different directions. I feel backward. I feel behind. What am I supposed to do? If you feel that way right now, here's some really good news. The beatitude of Jesus is already doing the work of God that he intended it to do in your heart. It's creating hunger in you. And you can't create that hunger in yourself. You can't make yourself hunger for righteousness. That's a work of the Spirit. John Piper wisely said one time, the word of God often creates what it describes. This is descriptive, but what's it doing? Does it make you want this? Does it make you want to live for Jesus? If you sense your poverty of spirit and you sense your growing hunger for righteousness, the Beatitudes are having the exact effect on you that God intended. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. If you hunger for a righteous life that honors God, do what the disciples did. Stay close to Jesus. Pursue him in his word. The same word that God is using right now to work sanctification in your heart. Don't neglect obedience. What you are commanded to do when you go to the word of God, do it. Do it with all your might. Don't hesitate a moment. But this is the kind of hunger that only God can work in us. Just as he's the only one who could work it in the crowd who was listening to Jesus on the plane. All of whom were concerned with earthly things. Don't want to go without a meal. Don't want to get poor like these men. In that interview with Rosaria, Dr. Glenn Sunshine mentioned the benefits of consuming larger portions of Scripture in one setting. Rosaria said that was part of how God worked salvation into her, was she just binge read the Bible. Be a good thing to consider doing. Just more intake of the Word of God. But again, it's the Word of God that has the effect on your heart, not the effort that you're putting in to trying to make him pleased with you. And a hunger is not the only thing that's true of the Christian. If you look at the second part of verse 21, the next thing that characterizes the Christian life, verse 21b, those who cry now. Matthew calls it mourning, sorrow, weeping, tears, seasons of somberness. Maybe a challenge for us to relate to prolonged physical hunger, but as you know, we've all shed some tears. Many of you have physical, emotional, and spiritual things that you've wept over in your life for years. We recognize that hunger is an unavoidable thing in human beings. If you don't eat, you will get hungry. Your body's going to let you know about it. But it's not that way with sorrow. If you don't cry, you're not going to die. What I mean is that tears are something we don't have to make and something that most people don't want. Godless America wants nothing to do with a real righteous brokenness and sadness. No. We want entertainment. Give us fun. Give us trifles, fleeting pleasures, bread and circuses, please. Run from sadness. Don't want it at all costs. Neil Postman wrote a book years ago critiquing the majority concern about the future of totalitarianism. He pointed out that most people fear an Orwellian kind of despotism. Think 1984. Got an absolute oppression of individual rights directly from Big Brother. His own concerns for our future enslavement, however, lay more in the Aldous Huxley Brave New World direction that we amuse, distract, entertain, and medicate ourselves into subjection. He says, People will come to love their oppression to adore the technologies that undo their capacity to think. It is control not by inflicting pain, 
but by inflicting pleasure. It's hard to argue that this isn't a part of the current big plan around us. But Jesus' people are going to be those who in choosing to follow him will face sorrows in this life. And they'll face it head on. And they must face it without fear. And at times, they'll face it full of tears. This is one of the great paradoxes of the Christian life. We're freed people. The only freed people on the planet. We're justified. We're filled with the joy fruit of the Spirit. But at the same time, God has given us eyes to see. And what we see around us is that the world is so far gone. How broken are our extended families? How corrupt are our legislators? All of the drug wars and overdoses and child grooming and trafficking in our communities, promiscuity, immodesty, the church capitulating to the spirit of the age, losing our historic buildings, monuments, and institutions by the day. And at the same time that all of that is happening, the mouth of hell is wide open and it is receiving countless multitudes every day. Some of you can think of a friend or family member or church member in your past and you spent a lot of time investing in this person. You told them about Christ. You watched them grow. You heard about their discoveries as they began to read the Bible for the first time or as they read it for the hundredth time. And then all of a sudden, they make a turn and they're gone. They drive off the cliffs of insanity. They walk away from the faith. They went out from us because they were not of us. Now, what does that do in the heart of the Christian? You weep. All of that time, all of the investment, and they were there. They loved Jesus. I mean, I could see their excitement and their joy in Sunday mornings. You have this sense that it was all for nothing. And then, in conjunction with that, you still have to live with yourself. You have to deal with your own remaining sin. Now, you can probably think of some things that you've gotten victory over, but there are areas of disobedience that you're still failing in today. You loathe the thought of what remains. Like Paul in Romans 7, you groan, oh, I want to be delivered from this body of death. I hate this. Now, at the same time that that sorrow is going on, Christians are joy-filled people. We are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. But the true Christian knows what it's like to come to a place of tears. The crowd present on the plateau that day had no idea the things of the Spirit that the disciples were thinking when Jesus said, blessed are those who cry now. All they saw was Jesus' followers being hounded and chased, chastised, rejected by the religious gatekeepers of that day. They were pitiful people kind of like the Old Testament prophets. I don't want to steal any of Jeremy's thunder for next week, but that's exactly where Jesus goes, isn't it? Verse 23, your reward is great in heaven for their fathers were doing the same thing to the prophets. You can hear the multitudes saying as they look on Jesus' people, yeah, if that were me, I'd cry too. But what does Jesus announce to them here? Blessed are those who cry now because you're going to laugh. It's another now and later reward. Everyone who's listening to my voice, these guys may look pretty sad at times. And you don't even know the half of what they're dealing with. But I tell you, there will come a day when they will be the ones that are laughing. And you know that there's more than just laughter 
intended in his meaning here. A good belly chortle after a hard cry is one kind of consolation. But Jesus is promising something far greater, far more significant. He's talking about our forever joy in his presence. As he said in Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. What's it going to be like when that reality hits you? When you're standing there in that moment in eternity? What's it going to be like? If tears do manage to stream down your face, they're only the kind that come because of a deep, soul-satisfying laugh that you can't control. This is the way that it ends? I can't believe this. And you just burst out in joy. Something like the solid joy of a mother who's just endured nine months of a pregnancy and then the painful labor. But what does she do? She forgets. She forgets about it. Why? Because I have my baby. There's a human being that's been born into the world. Consider this, beloved. Seeds of sorrow being planted in your heart now, later, in the future, shall coming up as an eternal joy. This is one of Yahweh's favorite storylines. It's everywhere in the Bible. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come home with a shout of joy, carrying his sheaves with him. Church of Jesus Christ, that's a promise to you. On their way into captivity, the song of Psalm 137, verse 1, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat and also wept when we remembered Zion. That song is answered by the later psalm, 126, verse 1 and 2. When Yahweh returned the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. Couldn't imagine it. Our mouth was filled with laughter and with shouts of joy. And the Bible tells us that God himself is not going to sit and watch us laugh. He's going to join in the romp with us. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be joyful in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping or the voice of crying. Isaiah 65 verse 19. Now I know there are some of you here who have faced deep sadness. And some of you here who are facing deep sadness right now. Brothers and sisters, look here. I know you know what it's like to mourn over your sin to lose sleep over lost family members, the heaps of murdered babies daily, parents who do despicable things to their children. For those of you who are really in Christ, that kind of sorrow is inescapable in this life. We do have it now. What's Jesus saying to you though? He's saying this, there will come a day when I make all the sad things come untrue. You will laugh in that moment the hardest and deepest laugh over his resolution to the greatest story ever told. You ever watched a movie with one of your family members or some friends and there's somebody there who's watching the movie and enjoying it so much they're more entertaining than the movie itself? You ever been there? We have one child that's like that. Tammy and I will often find ourselves ignoring the movie just so we can watch in this boy's direction. The story arc turns towards the end. The bad guys who were on top get toppled by the underdog good guys. And every time, it's the biggest smile, 
violent shaking of the limbs, hitting the couch, jumping up and down. And the laughter, what a laugh, what a laugh. That's what's coming, beloved. That's what's coming. Jesus said, therefore you too have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you that day. Now there's no command here. Again, these beatitudes, no commands. This is guaranteed to us. This is a promise of Christ himself. Don't try to leave and make yourself work for it. It's already yours in Christ. If you're suffering for Jesus, whether you've left home or family or country for Jesus, or you've merely left the dungeon cell of your former sins, you daily mourn over what you see in the world and what remains inside of you, you will not be able to stop the joy that's coming. The dam is going to break and laughter will roll over you wave after wave. No one will take your joy from you. How should you respond? Two things. Remember that you're blessed now and turn and bless God for his goodness. David said, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness that my glory may sing praise to you and not be silent. Yahweh did this for me so that I could turn and give it back. Oh, Yahweh, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Psalm 30, 11 to 12. Today is our day of rest, beloved. You think of this future reward today. Meditate on it. Celebrate it. Raise a glass to your jolly inheritance that's on the way. You still have sorrow in this life, yes. But heaven's joy can break in here now in this life. Let the words of the old hymn be your story. And many a rapturous minstrel among the sons of light will say of his sweetest music, I learned it in the night. And many a rolling anthem that fills the father's home sobbed out its first rehearsal in the shade of a darkened room. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have made promises to us, that you enjoy pouring out your blessings to us in this life, and that those blessings will continue on into eternity, that we can experience them in some degree now, but oh, what awaits us and how it motivates us to stay close to Jesus, to be like him. Would you empower your people in this way this week that they would glory in their inheritance, that they would glory in their blessed status, and they would think in their hard moments of that reward, and that the work of the beatitude would work in them to will and to work for your good pleasure. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.